Go ahead and uh, grab a seat, guys. Good morning. Happy summer. Uh, I know summer's a little bit weird. It's like just ships passing in the night a lot uh, with all of us being here, there, everywhere. So it's nice to kind of come together, gather here. I see the Burton kids are already herding their way out. So uh, wonderful if you are in the older class to go ahead and uh, head that direction. Um, Before we kind of roll into Ecclesiastes, I just wanted to um, share something with you guys. I don't know where those mics went, those handhelds. On the stairs. There we go, guys. All right, Simon says. Okay. On the stand. They're on the stand. See, it takes a lot to become a lead pastor, just in case you knew. If you pass sixth grade, you're good. All right? So, um, no, I just I wanted to share. Uh, I don't know if mic number one is on. Did they turn it off? Uh, it's on. Good. Um, just if you're, if you're a covenant member, you're well aware of this already, but... Um, I've been kind of doing this thing as the, the sole-paid staff guy for uh, over three years now, and by God's grace, somehow he's upheld me, uh, and by God's grace, we're able to bring on uh, another one. So, Mike, if you wouldn't mind just coming up. Most of you guys know Mike McKinney. He served as an elder uh, for the last almost two years now. Uh, you know, he's been part-time helping out, but uh, not nearly what he could do full-time. And so, if you're uh, a covenant member, you, you've been hearing this for a while. This isn't a surprise, but I know there's so many new faces and new people, so I want to make sure that we publicly make sure you're aware aware of who Mike is and what he's doing. Uh, Mike was um, really a part of, we had about 18 of us initially a couple years ago that were meeting in a house and praying and pleading and asking the Lord to do something unique and kind in Bergen County. Here we sit. It's remarkable what he's been doing, but uh, Mike was a part of that group. And if there's a few things I could briefly say about Mike, um, the, the two biggest things are one, if you know Mike at all, uh, or have heard Mike teach ever, uh, you know that he has a deep abiding passion and love for Jesus and his gospel. And uh, if you're around Mike, that rubs off on you very easily, and we welcome that. And so uh, Mike has uh, refined me in many ways, and God's used him in my life in some really profound ways, not just pastorally, theologically, uh, and just relationally. And so it's been great to walk with him and serve with him. Um, also, Mike has just been marked, Mike is marked as a guy who's just consistent. Uh, He's just faithful, and the kind of men you want leading are just men that are consistent and faithful. Um, And if there's one thing that kind of summarizes Mike's last couple years here, it's just been consistency, Uh, teachability, humility. Um, So we're thrilled. I'm thrilled personally that I I have someone to carry the load who's going to help out with a lot of the discipleship and implementation and assimilation and theology and teaching uh, of the ministry as the church has grown. We are so grateful, and we need more help and more vocational roles, and so uh, Mike will be jumping into that role. So we're we're very excited and uh, thankful. I know he started July 1st officially was his first start date, but he had to head out of town for some family stuff, so he's back. So this is the first chance I've had to have him up here since his official beginning. So um, anything you'd like to just share real quick, and then we'll hop in? Oh, I need to turn it on. Right, 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 right. See, again, we are learning here. Okay. Got to hold that button, I think. Yeah, I think it's good. No. No, whatever. Good. Right. Nice. Okay. <laughs> um, it was probably about maybe eight years ago. Uh, I was at Wheaton College, and where I met my wife, Karen, uh, where I was, I felt like God had called me to some sort of ministry. I didn't quite know what that was. Um, about nine years ago, so a year before I felt like I was called, uh, my wife and I thought that I would be a dentist making good money and she would never have to worry about anything. And, um, and then God, I mean, I won't tell the story, but God just interrupted, literally interrupted, and it was just a 180. Um, 
And it's been, it's been a, a really good eight years waiting up until this point. I had no idea. I knew that maybe someday I would end up in, in a role like this. Um, but it was, it's been, you know, God has done a whole lot of just personal refining in me, uh, preparing me. I am so thankful to God. Praise God that he did not put me in some sort of pastoral role eight years ago, right out of the chute. I had a lot of sanctification to go through. Uh, if you don't know that word, it just means becoming more like Jesus. And, and even my wife as well, uh, just preparing her heart. She grew up as a, as a missionary kid and a pastor's kid. And so she knows all the, the, the good things, but also some, some of the tough things as well. So God's had to really just work in her heart as well and, and prepare her to also join me in this. And so she is, just so you're aware, she is full, 100%. She, if she was up here, she would say, I am all about being a pastor's wife right now. So praise God for that as well. Um, but, I mean, it was probably five years ago as well that, I mean, I was teaching at Eastern Christian, just Bible, and I was, I was totally content with that. Um, and then when my wife and I came here, you know, five years ago, uh, I just met Mike Reed. I had no idea who Mike Reed was, and, and we were thrilled just being a part of this church. And then, um, so I was, yeah, I was content just teaching the Bible at Eastern Christian School. And then through a series of events, it just seems like God, it was clear that um, not only just internally God kind of pushing me this way, but also just the other elders encouraging me. And, and even you guys, especially the, those of you who are members here, you guys are insanely encouraging. Uh, it's just not even funny how encouraging you are. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you've got two guys that are barely over 30, uh, and you, you trust us and you encourage us, and uh, we're so, our hearts are just are so warmed when we talk about you guys and how you guys encourage us and pray for us. So uh, just please pray for me um, that I would be faithful uh, that I would continue to be a lover of Jesus, that I would be faithful to his word, that I would love Karen well, pray for my wife as well, that she also would be um, faithful and consistent and mm -hmm. continuing to be strengthened as we go through this. That's really it. Thank you, guys. Um, I consider it an honor. I Please, please, please pray for me. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Mike. Great. Praise God. Awesome. Hold on, hold on. Pray for you. Yeah, I was, uh, I was joking with Mike, you know, on his way back last week, I had an Excel spreadsheet. I was going to dump on him that was the size of the Grand Canyon. So uh, he welcomed that with open arms. So we're thankful. I just want to pray for Mike, pray for our time, and uh, pray that God would, would speak to us this morning. Father, thank you uh, for Mike first. Thank you just that you've saved him and that you want to use him as an instrument in the Redeemer's hand. And Father, we pray that you would continue to help him navigate these new waters he's in. I pray that we as a church and as a covenant family can love and serve him well and encourage him in that. Thankful that you appoint callings and those things, Lord. Uh, Acts 20 will tell us that. So we're grateful that we can trust you as the one who's put Mike in this position ultimately uh, through human hands. And God, we just pray for encouragement, for excitement, for joy. God, we know uh, that a happy church has happy pastors. And so just pray that he be a happy man in the Lord and enjoy his service to you in this way. Pray for their family, for him and Karen as they adjust in this, in this uh, transitional time, and for their two girls. Uh, their family would continue, prim continue to primarily and first and foremost love you and make much of you. Guide our time. Give us illumination to understand the word this morning. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Thanks, Mike. All right. Uh, if you uh, need a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. I always say you can grab one. Otherwise, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We are halfway with the door hinge. And Mike didn't mention, but I want to mention, some of you guys got the email if you're on our distribution list. Uh, he just finished the back half of Ecclesiastes study guide. Part 2 is up. I cannot commend that more to you. Uh, if you're looking for something for personal study, family study, corporate study, uh, the overwhelming response from you guys has been unbelievably fruitful. Uh, so we're grateful that God is using that, that you guys are taking that and walking in that as we preach through uh, Ecclesiastes this summer. So that's been awesome to know. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you're new, just thrilled that you are here. Uh, if you're wondering what we do, we love to teach through the Bible, the Scriptures, which we believe is God's Word. It's His revelation to us. We believe that God has allowed us as His creation, not just to walk around in blind speculation, but we've been given divine revelation from Him, bound up in His written Word. We see it in creation. We see it in the person of Jesus Christ, but we really fundamentally understand all of that as we read and understand and as the Holy Spirit of God illuminates what we see and read and hear from the Word of God. So we've been in Ecclesiastes. It is a book in the wisdom literature of your Bible. It is uh, a book that deals with why are we here, what's the meaning of all of this. Um, Really, you have this guy, Solomon, who was one of the wealthiest, wisest, most prosperous people who ever lived. He helped build the temple of God in the Old Testament. He was used by God in, in many different ways. He also sinned greatly, and we see that didn't go well for him. But all in all, you see this man named Solomon who's basically writing this memoir to us saying, hey, here's all that I've learned in my journey under the sun. And what I've learned ultimately is you can chase everything under the sun alone, untied to him. And in the end, if you don't get the God who lives over the sun, then you've totally lost completely. Okay, life is meaningless. It's futile. It's vanity. So as you go through this book, you see under heaven, under the sun, repeatedly throughout the, this, this kind of book that he's writing. And so he's writing to lay before us the urgency of, hey, think honestly, think brutally, think realistically, think with integrity, think with intellectual, intellectually. So because I'm, I'm laying before you things that most people don't take the time to stop and consider. And so he's been ramping all the way up. Now here is basically not just the middle of Ecclesiastes, but really kind of a, a door hinge to where he's going to go. So he's just been having these bleak laments about just life is vain. I had everything that one could have. I had all the wives, the cars, the house, the landscaping, the, the money, the, the prosperity. I had it all. And in the end, I realized that untethered to God in the face of Jesus Christ, it was all meaningless. It was all lost. So now he shows us as he kind of turns the corner is um, it's, it's a bit of a move from this lamenting um, and showing us in a place of vanity to how we delivered from that. And uh, here's what's great, is he's going to show you that I'm not just trying to help you understand what life is to be like when you leave here. I want to show you how you live every day. So it's not just how do you look at your funeral, it's how do you live in each birthday that continue throughout the year. And so he's going to this morning basically say, look, if all this is true, if, if life is totally vain apart from God under the sun, then let me give you some wisdom now. Let me just give you some practical wisdom sound bites. Now, it's a little odd. It's kind of like he, he takes a schizophrenic break and just starts walking through random points of just, here, let me just start laying before you wisdom. So it's a bit scattered. We're going to do our best to walk through it in chapter 7 and see uh, what he does. But he's basically comparing this whole idea of wisdom and folly, wisdom and foolishness. And so it would make sense that he would do that because second to Jesus Christ, the Bible says he was the wisest man who ever lived. So uh, good if we listen to him, all right? Uh, chapter 7, verse 1, here's what he he says, he says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death 
than the day of birth, okay? Ointment's just a word for cologne. It's just a word for perfume. And he's, what he's basically saying is he's, he's basically summing up all the last six chapters that we've just had and saying, okay, listen, you can try to do everything you want to create pleasing aromas towards people externally. You can get the house, get the wife, get the cars, get the things, get the stuff, get everything that is external. But if you're broken intrinsically, who really cares, like, you can do all of that. You can make a pleasing aroma for yourself on the outside, but if your soul is rotting, then you're in big trouble. And so he's just giving these wisdom sound bites to help us understand this, which is why he wants to drive your head into the following line, a funeral is better than a birthday. Now, what does he mean by that? He's not celebrating death. He's saying, hey, you can learn a lot by attending funerals, much more than attending birth. Um, listen, this is why when I go and I, I preach at funerals, you got everybody kind of rolling their eyes. I want the party. I want the food. I'm hungry. Yeah, see the bride and groom. Let's get on with this thing. But when I, hap- when I preach at funerals, without fail, people are leaning in. They're listening. They're attentive. Death is before them. The, the frailty of human life is readily apparent. So he says, hey, for that, funerals can do a lot more for you than just birthdays. And there's almost a part of him that's going, so why would you chase the dream now when you have the dream coming? Right? I mean, as Christians, this is the eternal perspective that he's kind of pushing us into. Why do you chase everything under the sun if at your funeral it's going to be better than your birthday? Because for the Christian, our last day is our first day and is not our worst day. It is our best day. Right, because we become face-to-face with our risen king and we live and reign and rule with God himself. Sin will be eradicated. New Jerusalem will be set up. We will work and enjoy things just as we do here in the physical earth. You will never toil. We will enjoy good food with the lamb of God and we will never be hungry. We will experience life that we all long to experience back in the Garden of Eden that we're all trying to get back into that we all got kicked out of. And he says that in that sense, a funeral is much better than a birthday. And for the non-Christian, a funeral is much better than a birthday in the sense of it creates an urgency for you to examine, hey, I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I don't know about you. I I talked uh, a long time ago about things that kind of stir affections for you. Like when you're in just dry desert times, what are the things that you do that help kindle fire for the Lord? And I'm not just talking about straight Bible reading, but but other things might be outside of that. Going for a hike, maybe uh, going to a quiet place where you can just pray and think and meditate and be still. But, But outside of that, I was sharing for me, there's something for me still when I drive by a graveyard. And maybe it's just the funerals I've done, but I remember in college there was something particularly meaningful and drastic about when I would drive by graveyards, seeing the reality of death. And something about that that would cause in me to realize, man, let's, this is what's at stake. Life is short. We're not going to be here forever. We're going to be in eternity forever. So Solomon is trying to help us understand everything I've just said in the first six chapters is to get you to realize that that's what's going to mean most. What you think about in that regard means most. Living life knowing how we'll stand before God and give an account is the only way to truly live, right? So that's the only true meaningful life to have. And this is why he says this in verse 2, because we typically see birth as a blessing and death as a tragedy. But he's going to show us, he sees death as one that frees us from the pains of it and ushers us into the presence of a perfect father. Verse 2, it is better to go in the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Death is the end of all mankind. Not eternal death, he's talking about the grave death, physical death. 
That's why sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Solomon's saying, this is why funerals are better than birthdays. I've learned more through my grief than the parties that I threw in my mansion. I mean, ain't that true? Like, like no one is at the party. No one's at the top of the roller coaster at Six Flags going, I wonder how God and I are doing. Right? Like, no one's doing it. No one's checking their soul internally. Nobody's going, man, I wonder how my, my walk is. I wonder how my, my patience is. I wonder how my Christ-likeness is. No, you're just enjoying the party. There's nothing wrong with that, but he's saying, my grief did much more for me than the parties that I threw spiritually. It caused me to consider life. It caused me to consider meaning. It caused me to consider who I was and what I was. So what he's saying is the wise person takes the tough days, the tough seasons, the tough moments, the funerals, the wakes, the bad news, and uses those things to lean into the God who made him and not run from the God who made him. How do you use sorrow in your life? Right, that, that's a universal question for anybody, right? So no one wakes up sorrow-free in this world. Now, we experience the pangs of it in different degrees, different ways, different times, different seasons, but when the pangs of life hit you, where do you go? He's going to show us that most people just numb it. The wise person leans into it and leans more importantly into the God who is permitting it, allowing it, and caring for you through it. He says, in that sense, it did a lot more for me. Those dark nights of your soul are used to shape you internally, right? Where is God in this? Where's the hand of Christ in this? Where's the comfort from Christ in this? Where is his forgiveness? Where's his nearness? Those are the questions that we should be asking as we walk in these types of times. And in our culture, right, it, it, this is so appropriate because we celebrate publicly and mourn privately, right? I mean, this is the veneer of social media, right, just getting you on a track where you're always winning, you're never losing, right? Just pull up Facebook and Twitter later. Just scroll through whatever ones you want. Everyone's always winning, never losing. And he's saying, why do we do this? There's something very good in our laments. There's something very good in our grief that will actually usher us towards God and not away from God to where we see more of his character and more of his kindness and glory than before. What a counterintuitive thought. We think suffering, that's why he doesn't exist. And we already walked through a couple weeks ago all the ways the world tries to deal with suffering, how every system outside of the Christian faith doesn't adequately deal with suffering outside of Jesus Christ who bore the greatest suffering for his own. And so we are learning a lot of this. So he's repeating. You can see him just kind of summarizing all of this in these sound, might, sound bites. But he's saying, man, those things that allow you to get to grief, the sorrow that lets you feel, lets you get to God, which lets you get to the people of God, which lets you walk through and heal and mend amidst the brokenness. It's a beautiful gift. It allows you to mature, grow, and heal. And this is why he says the fool, he just numbs his pain. It's not really happening. Two blind eyes, two deaf ears. This thing isn't really that bad. The world isn't really that terrible. This situation isn't really happening. It doesn't really affect me. They drink instead of lament, right? They binge instead of cry out. They laugh instead of pray. It doesn't affect me. And this goes back to that weird joy. No one says in a happy moment, no one examines their soul in that. And he's saying, hey, enjoy the festivals, but you grow in the funerals. 
I mean, I mean you, can, you can enjoy the good times, but that's not where you're really going to grow. That's really where the fruit's going to sprout from. And he's just repeating this over and over and over. This is why he says this next. Because wise people lament. Wise people grieve properly. Wise people pray. Wise people examine their hearts. Verse 5. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This is also vanity. He's just continuing his thought progression, right? The wise person receives wise rebuke, wise correction, because he knows what's at stake. He's going, no, I've seen the frailty of life. I've seen the seriousness of life. I've seen how sin can devastate and destroy. I see the, how this is necessary, that I'm awakened to the train wreck that might be coming. And so I'm glad when God wakes me up in his kindness. That's what he's getting at here. He's showing us through this that the wise person receives that and listens well. He says the fool, though, the fool says everything is a joke, right? He just laughs at it all. God's a joke. Jesus is a joke. The end is a joke. Hell is a joke. Torment's a joke. Wrath is a joke. Those things aren't serious. And so he numbs himself repeatedly to the pain, right? He calls him a pot that laughs, not realizing he's on fire. Right? So the fool is somebody who just keeps laughing, not realizing they're going up in smoke. And they keep numbing themselves to the reality of what's actually going on, what's actually happening in their soul. So he says, instead of gauging with others, engaging with Christ, the fool numbs his pain and refuses to face life honestly. We've been saying this throughout the last six chapters. Solomon's been saying this through the last six chapters. It brings to mind Pastor McKinney's sermon from a couple weeks ago. The fool doesn't care about death, the reality of death, what's after. He laughs at it because it helps him with his angst. It helps him with his restless heart. So he'll just refuse it and ignore it. Now, some of us maybe are owned by this, enslaved by this. I don't know. Solomon's going, don't be foolish. Don't walk down that road. Sin has never won out. And that's why the beauty of the good news is that your good works and your good actions and your good temperament cannot win God's love. Therefore, your failures cannot lose his love. And so, man, it's okay to walk in those dark seasons where you lament, grieve, mourn, but lean into him and grow from him and glean from him. And you ask yourself, where is God in this? So he says, if you're on fire, don't get angry at the guy who's telling you you're on fire. Like, that's the moron, right? That's the foolish person. Like, you're going up in flames. Someone comes alongside and says, hey, I smell some smoke. I, I see some flames. You're like, ah, it's okay. I'm going to burn a while. It'll take a while. My right arm, yeah, flesh is coming off, but we're good, right? I mean, no, anyone look at that and go, you're on fire, Right, this is classic in marriages, right? I see it a lot where it's predominantly the wife going, hey, uh, babe, our marriage ain't doing great. And the guy's like, yeah, we're okay. We'll be good. Yeah, moron, you're on fire, right? Like you are going up in smoke. Let's get in this. Let's talk. Let's pray. Let's figure it out. Your wife just said your marriage is on fire. And we go, no, I'll numb it. I'll laugh at it. I'll make jokes about it. I won't examine it. I won't pursue counseling. This issue isn't that deep. This addiction is not that serious. This sin really can be tamed. Right? We just, we don't take it seriously. We laugh. We numb it. We cover it up. So the wise person surrounds himself with godly men and women. The fool pretends that everything is great. You know, this is one reason that, man, I genuinely love our elders. I love them. Because they're not afraid to let me know when there might be little crackles under me. Say, so, hey, Mike, how's your soul? 
How's your walk with Jesus? How's your marriage doing? I was with an elder two weeks ago, and that was a beautiful way they just engaged me. We're out for coffee, and they just said, how is your marriage? Share with me the, the ways that you need prayer. Share with me the ways you need encouragement. Share with me the ways that you need prayer in ministry, in pastoring, in helping others, in the pain you're dealing with in your own personal life. Those are good, godly friends that protect you with their water bucket from lighting on fire. Do you have those people around you in your life? And if you do, do you refuse to listen to them? Because you can say, I got them, but it does nothing if you just walk around on fire still. If you refuse the remedy, which is God's people. So just a question. Um, if you're in a dark day, are you pretending? This morning, is, if there's a looming cloud where you're like, I don't know, I, I think... I think I might be on fire. I think that maybe I've been numbing it. Maybe I've been just ignoring it. Maybe my, this other person's been saying, hey, this is of concern, and you're just ignoring the problem and thinking it'll go away and thinking it's not that big of a deal. Are you pretending at all? And listen, as I say that, don't think of somebody else. <laughs> man, half of you are already going, yeah, man, he is on fire. She's on fire, right? No, no, I'm talking about you. Let's stay in this. God's word, you and him, okay? In between you and the Lord, are you someone who's pretending? Are you someone who's numbing yourself? Are you someone who's ignoring the seriousness of what's at stake in your life, physically and spiritually? How are you walking? How, what are you doing, right? He's summarizing the past six chapters. The bigger house won't do it. The new wife won't do it. The internet site won't do it. More money won't do it. That's not going to put the Band-Aid on your soul that's going up in flames. And you run into all these other things that he's warning against, saying, hey, I tried all that stuff. That didn't cure my ache. That didn't heal my pain. That didn't deal with my grief and my sorrow. No, the risen Christ deals with it. He's the one who God has sent from over the sun to invade this fractured, broken world to make right what has been made wrong. Right? Profound. Beautiful. Where you turn when everything goes south reveals everything, right? Because your hope, where you place your hope, is imperative to your joy. I say it all the time. Like where you're fundamentally placing hope, placing worth, placing ease, placing that, that protective bandage over your grief is imperative to you walking in your greatest joy. And we know that that's predominantly found in giving our grief and sorrows to Jesus, letting him walk with us, giving us his people to endure through it, right? So we get our counselors around us and say, yeah, yeah, let's walk in this together. It's a community project. And I know many of you are doing that, and I praise God for that. I also know many of you, I know we walk in, and I remember our meetings the past couple weeks. I maybe said some things that stung, but praise God, you received it in grace. We doused you with water, and you're walking in grace and greater freedom. You're being delivered from enslavement. You know, that's why I just want, to, want you to know very boldly and honestly, maybe some of you weren't aware of that, but we have an addiction ministry that gathers here during the week. We're seeing people, and it's not just drug addiction. It's not just sexual addiction. It can be greed addiction. It can be lust addiction. It can be any, really, almost all of us should be in there <laughs> because the idols in our hearts are inexhaustible, right? And so it, I don't want you to think, man, i got to be like killing animals and like, you know, getting set up for a murder. No, I'm, I'm talking about just if you are struggling in such a way there is habitual unrepentant sin and you're like, I need help, we are seeing some beautiful movement of grace there. So inquire with the elders and say, hey, I, I just, we can do it privately, personally, we can do it anonymously, but just say, hey, I, I, this is my deal, this is the issue, and I gotta see how Jesus Christ meets the every need of my soul. 
how the word of God will invade the deepest, darkest places and addictions that I walk in. But that's happening. So maybe that's something that you need to engage with. This is why he continues in verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Wisdom says don't take shortcuts. Shortcuts won't get you to prosperity. Shortcuts won't get you to God's grace. Waiting on the Lord will get you to his grace. Enduring through the grief with his help will get you to prosperity. He's already reminded us, right, about a God who sees oppression and injustice. We've already talked about that in Ecclesiastes. No, he sees it. He's the one who fully enacts true justice and fullest amount of judgment in the end. So in that sense, right, the end is better than the beginning for that person who sees vengeance his mind declares the Lord. I don't have to take it out. I don't have to enact it. I have to be faithful as far as it depends on me. I live peaceably with all men, Romans 14. But God, the just judge, will deal with human hearts in his way. We've already seen that back in chapter 4. So in that sense, the end is good as, is better than the beginning. But underneath all this, he's saying, if you understand the meaning of life, if you understand how this whole thing ends, if you have a long view, an eternal view that God will usher in the new kingdom, that sinners will be dealt their just payment, that the righteous saved by God and given his righteousness will be given their just reward, then you get to decrease in your anger and godliness gets to increase. Because most of our anger arises because we want to be God and we're not. Because we don't have a long view. Because we don't see the end. Oh, they're getting away with that. Oh, I can't believe they did this. I have to enact justice. I have to right that wrong. He says, no, that's mostly why your anger increases. Because you think you're deserving of something that you were never owned or promised or deserve. Yet God will fully do everything perfectly right in the end. You have a long view that helps your anger and grows you in patience. He goes, otherwise, you're going to grow in madness, right? If you think your job is to be God over the universe and make everything right, get all the philosophies in order, you will grow in madness. I mean, the, the longer I talk to people who are deep in philosophy, right, and I'm talking about deep secular philosophy, I just realize it's just madness, like, they're just desperately trying to find a way to pinprick what they hate about God being God. Really, they want to be God, and so that's the issue at hand. That's not the issue of suffering. It's normally not the issue of grief. It's normally, however short or temporary, never the issue of, I want this or that. It's that you desperately and fully want to have full authority, and you can't. And so it frustrates you, and you grow in anger and madness instead of patience and grace and godliness. So he just reveals that's maybe an issue that is causing that. So in our marriage, in our work, in our relationships, you have to lift your eyes and see the long view. You have to or you won't make it. Right? I mean, just let's track through just three of those. I mean, in my marriage, in our house, right, I have to see that my marriage is predominantly not Mike and Kristen. It's Christ and the church. Therefore, my marriage has little to do with Kristen and pretty much everything to do with Christ. So now I'm free to love her and cherish her as Christ relentlessly loves his bride and cares for her, not concerned with what I'm getting and what I'm owed. I have a long view. In the end, it's to celebrate at the end of all things how amazing is Christ who ferociously loves his bride like that. We get to celebrate that. Listen, at the end of all things, no one's going to be celebrating your marriage, right? 
Don't go, man, do you see how amazing Mike and Kristen were? How they married for 25 years. You believe that? No one's talking about that. Everyone's talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation calls it, where we look at the collective bride of Christ that he bought as the perfect bridegroom. Uh, You've got your work. Your work is not predominantly just so you pay bills and make yourself feel better, even though paying bills is part of it and caring for your family. Your work is predominantly so you might be a glory display for those around you, that you might win souls to the good grace of Jesus Christ. You might be a reverberation, a trophy of God's kindness in the cross of Christ. That's predominantly and first and foremost why you're in your workplace. And it's also so that you might realize all of your work is holy work and not sacred work if you're in Christ. You got to have a long view. Like, I'm not just in this job for temporary happiness and fulfillment. There are much bigger things happening here. That's why I tell you all the time, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a street sweeper, CEO, every bit of what you do is totally and utterly holy and sacred and meaningful. The depths you cannot exhaust regardless of what you do if you're in the seat of Jesus Christ. How awesome is that, that that being a Christian too gives us depth of meaning in no matter what we do because of the point behind all of it. It's universal. Your kids, um, your kids are not solely given to you so they'd be little minions that do what you want and just behave right and be good moral creatures. Your discipline is not so that it affects how you look. Your identity is not in your children. You already have Jesus Christ. Your goal is to impart to them the glory of Jesus Christ so they might be glad ambassadors of his work as you gladly hand them to the Father when they are really his and not yours. They're fully on loan to you as long as he allows them to be in your hands. The long view changes everything. That's what he's getting at, man. You've got to have a long view. You've got to have an eternal perspective. You've got to see things all the way down the road because that will help you in your anger and it will increase godliness in your life, and it will increase patience in your life. This is why Solomon says this in verse 10. Don't say, why were the former days better than these? For that's not wisdom that you asked this. (laughs) This is so practical. Man, this life was so much better when I was single. Now I got a wife, or man, this life stinks single. I need to be married. Life was so much better before I had kids, now I have kids. Or Life was so much better when I had my old job, not this job. He goes, that's the fool talking, not wisdom talking. He says, the wise person realizes and has a long view and gets all that he has. is really to steward it as God's given him to the glory of his name. It's not for his own fulfillment, not for his own enticement, not for his own. Solomon's going, we already, we already walked through all that. All that stuff's vanity apart from him. You get to discover joy in a secret place, right, which is tied to God who lives over the sun, right? See this all the time. Married people want to be single. Single people want to be married. Um, he's saying, don't be like the Israelites, right? God frees them. They get out of slavery. They're wandering. God splits the Red Sea. I mean, can you imagine walking through that? What greater demonstration of grace do you need? You walk through it. Get to the side. I'm hungry. Okay, here's food from heaven. I'm thirsty. Hit the rock. Eh, you stink still. I mean, What kind of temperament is that where that's what we become, just Israelites that constantly want to get back to the slavery we're in going, I think it was better in Egypt. The former days were better. And he's going, are you crazy? The whole point I delivered you was not for you. The point I delivered you was for me, for my name and renown, for my glory to be put on display. That's why we are agents of grace. And it's amazing because 
That's why the people who understand this are the most freed people on the planet. Because we live, work, act, function, parent with our identity worth not tied to anything outside of him. So it frees you from these other little, middle, small minion idols that creep into your heart. Approval of your boss at work. Your spouse being your functional savior. Your children being a functional savior. It frees us. This is good wisdom from Solomon. And listen, we will always over-romanticize the past. And we all do it. Those were the glory days. Those were the good days. No, they weren't. They were good days. They weren't the best days. Because your memory's foggy, you have a fallen brain, and what God's calling you into in the future is more important, which is why the Scriptures continue to say, fix your eyes on what is ahead, not behind. Look out your windshield, not your rearview mirror. Some of us, you just stare at the rearview mirror and not out the windshield at the pastures that God is calling you into. And he says, look what's before you. Look what's ahead of you. Might be a great word for someone in here. Verse 11, here's what he says. I'll tell you, it's just all these random sound bites. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Solomon just wraps up all these bites, sound bites of wisdom saying, hey, protect these things you hear like you protect your money. Because what's at stake is eternal. So you know how a lot of us would, would say, man, we just want to protect our income with like every last possible means? Some of you guys are just watching the stock market. You're watching every penny you get. And I'm not saying it's, it's good to be frugal. It's good to be a wise steward. But I'm saying some of us, man, we hold on to money so much so that it drives all of our decisions. We just want to make sure that what's in our bank is X dollars. And he's saying, man, just like your tenacity to save and hoard and keep for yourself and preserve finances, why don't you do it with godly wisdom? Don't walk in unbelief. Don't believe that sin wins out. Sin has never won out. Jesus always wins out. So don't fall into this pattern of, I don't think God really means that. I don't think that sin is that serious. I don't think that my life is really a train wreck. I don't think I'm really on fire, even though I'm going up in smoke. He says, no, 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 no. Take this wisdom, hold it tight, and treasure it, and walk in it like your life and your livelihood depends on it. Is that how you take godly wisdom? When you hear a verse read, when you hear a sermon given, do you take that to heart and bury it in the trinket treasure chest of your soul and say, man, this is worth infinite, infinite riches to me? I love when Mike posted the study guide this week. He said that the infinite riches that are in the word of God, which is why we've given you the study guide, just that idea of storing in your spiritual treasure chest godly wisdom learning to walk the path of the wise and not the fool. It says, is that how you do this? Because in the end, what's at stake could literally save your life. And this is why he ends repeating something he's already said twice, verse 13, which I want to end our time on. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So Solomon has already been talking about suffering, adversity. We've spent at length discussing this, Romans 8, a couple weeks ago, how it conforms us to the image of Christ, that God predetermines everything primarily for that means. 
That we, the character of Christ is something the Christian is in love with. So we grow in his endurance. We grow in his courage and his holiness and his righteousness. We grow in all of those things. Well, here, here's what he says. He, he ties this up again, reiterating, remember, God's in charge. So in the end, we have no choice but really to submit to the way God does things. Like, it's kind of just a, a, a soft rebuke. Like, you're trying to control this whole thing called life, and you can't do it, and you know you can't do it, so get off that vain treadmill and step into the sure path that moves forward to glory, which is under God who made you the creator as you as the created. And walk in glad submission to him as you walk in the way he's wired you and made you and fashioned you. But in all this, he says, both come from the hand of God. When you're having great times, rejoice. And when you're having Adverse times, rejoice, because that's still God's gift to you. Now, this is hard. I mean, I want everything to go according to my plans. Everything. Who doesn't? I mean, there's, if you're not being honest if you say no. We all have that space inside of us that want things to go a particular way. Our roadmap is kind of charted out. I mean, this is mostly that single gal, right? He's about 18. She charts out the whole life schedule about down on what the color hair her husband has to his body type to how many kids that he'll provide her, where they'll live, and how much money he'll make, and where, what kind of you know, house they'll have, and then what their kids will look like. They even have the, that charted out, and then what they'll do when they grow up, and what college they'll attend, and what sport they'll play, and then what college career they get, and then what job they get, and then how they'll kind of end. And then here's where my funeral will be, and here's the the place I'm going to get buried and I'm not going to be cremated, going to be buried. You're going to get cremated, not buried. Like they have it all kind of worked out. And he's saying that is total, utter foolishness because God is not our employee. He is our God. He is not our life coach. He is our king. Yeah, yeah many of us treat him that way, right? And Solomon's going, there's no life there. So he says whether prosperity comes or adversity comes, remember it all flowed through God's hands. Now, here's why this is a bit challenging. And I, some theologians use it like this, and I like this. There's the active hand of God and passive hand of God, but at the end of the day, it all comes through the hand of God. You see this throughout the Scriptures. So you have um, Nebuchadnezzar, right, in the Old Testament, right, in Daniel. He, he basically has the active hand of God until he finally realizes, God, you're in charge, I am not. He gets struck with madness up until that. Look at Daniel 4, verse 34. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar's writing this as a memoir, right? He's writing down, he's penning these words. I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, that's God, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Take a glass of water. He says, God struck me with madness till I would realize, listen, you can't control this thing. I'm the one who sits on the axis of the universe. Where were you when I made all things? He just humbles us. He gives us a right picture of him. This is what Solomon is doing. You see the passive hand of God in 2 Corinthians, right, where Paul's, man, I got this thorn in my flesh. I hate it. Can you remove it? And God says, no, it's a gift for me, and I'll never abandon you. What? My grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. 
This is Job, right? Satan comes to him and says, hey man, uh, I want to test his love. I want to plague him, take from him. He says, yeah, you can do whatever you want through the hand of God, but you cannot lay a finger on Job. Okay? God's still in full authority and he allows permits. It still flows through his hand. At the end of the day, what is he doing? He wants you to see that he alone is enough. That's a warm gift from God. As hard as it is, as difficult as it is, this is to all warm us to himself. Listen, this life, listen, you can either walk through adversity without him or with him. Like you can walk through pain, trial, suffering, grief with him or without him. Listen, the difference is either you realize the meaning goes beyond you, rolls up off of your shoulders into something divine and deep and meaningful and joy-sustaining, dark day catching, right? Or you can say, this is just random and I don't know whatever falls on me will follow me. That is terrifying to me. I would much rather have a God who is in alignment and control of it all than just random occurrences happening for no reason, which is total vanity. And he says, there's a God behind all of this who is using all that enters into your life for his great glory and pleasure. And we've discussed this multiple times. We've seen this in multiple ways. So there are times God will bring, brothers and sisters, what is crooked into your life. And it's his gift to you. It's his love for you. It's his gracious, kind discipline. For some of us, it's to wake us up. I've repeatedly talked about wrath and passive and active wrath. Both are great, but man, I'd much rather have the active wrath. Wake me up. than the passive wrath that almost lets me keep going in my ignorance all the way to eternal torment forever apart from God. Much, much rather take God intervening going, hey, wake up. You're not in control of this thing. Your worth isn't in that. It's in me. I am enough for you. Is he doing that in your life? Do you see it as God, God's kindness? God does send sorrow into our lives because he loves us, because he wants us to know that he's totally enough. Because in the end, guys, who do you have? I'm talking eternal end. Who do you have? Him. He's enough or he's not. One pastor said a beautiful mention in this. He puts it this way. God, in his tender providence, may remove our comforts and may grant us a limp so that we will lean on him. Listen, I've learned in my short life, it is not unloving of God to break my hand when it's holding on to something that's detrimental to my soul. Is he breaking your hand? because you're holding on to something that will be detrimental to your soul. So really, it's his greatest act of love to you to discipline you in that way, to say, wake up, you're my kid. I love you. I'm for you. Joy's found in a different place. Worth is found in a different place. Identity's found in a different place. I want to say something in the middle of this, because this is really important. Um, sometimes, right, grief, pain, suffering is not at all because of God, and it's because of your sin. <laughs> so, so if we could, because I know people that use good theology to justify them sinning in their sin. So oh, life is so hard and so dark and so painful because God's just putting this in my life. No, it's you. You're walking in clear, unrepentant sin. You're playing with fire. You're lit half on fire going, I'm not burning. Marriage is a train wreck. We're fine. We're good. Not going to pursue this. Not going to pursue this. But we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll make it. No, Listen, you're on fire. 
goes back to verse 5. Man, you're that pot that's crackling underneath, and that's the fool that says, hey, I'll be good, I'll numb it, I'll ignore it, and I'll keep walking this path. And God's saying, no, sometimes that's just because of your ignorance and foolishness. Some of you guys, your life is headed towards destruction, not because God's sending destruction, because sin promised to destroy and decay and ruin you, and yet you continue to chase it believing that a different end might turn out for you, and I'm telling you no different end has ever turned out for anyone. This is why it's a constant practice of mine when, and we have, hit very dark seasons. As a family, personally, one of our go-tos first is, okay, let's examine the landscape. Is there secret sin in our life? Am I walking in a way that's not pleasing to the Lord? Am I pursuing him? And then once all that is good, then we say, okay, then this is God's way of warming, him to him, warming me to himself. But it's good to have a grid because some of us will justify what we do and blame it on God, which is even worse and more horrific. And God's saying we have to be careful what two things we're believing in. I want to end with James 1 because Solomon has been repeating this to show that, to illustrate there are differing ways that this adversity enters our life to do certain things to us. Went to Romans 8 two weeks ago. I want to go to James 1 to finish our time this morning. Um, In the New Testament, you see the realities from all these shadows. He's going to pull all these strands together, just three verses. James 1. Here's what James writes. Count it all joy, my brothers. I'm sure most of you have heard this. You have it in your house on a plaque, on a coffee cup. I don't know. This is so common. Let's look at it for just a moment. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. That means when you are thrown in the pit of adversity, face down. That's the illustration James is giving. For you know that the testing of your faith, the adversity towards your faith, produces steadfastness. Some of your guys' translations says perseverance, same word. And let steadfastness have its full effect so you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, first, understand, James is writing to Jewish believers. They were becoming Christians. We're like, wow, Jesus is the Messiah. While the Holy Spirit did fall, while I can be filled with the Holy Spirit, I can be empowered by his grace. And Saul, right, we learned last week, right, became Paul, right? He was persecuting this church. Acts 8, a dispersion happens. They're running for their lives. They're leaving their homes. They're grabbing their kids. They're stoning people to death. They're beating people, chucking them in prison. So you're a Jewish Christian family going, oh my goodness, I love the Lord. We love this gospel. We gotta get out of here because the armies are coming. So you start fleeing for your lives, and James writes to you and says, hey, be joyful. You want to punch him in the face, right? I mean, you're like, seriously? You want me to count it joy? Now, remember, we distinguished weeks ago joy and happiness. Joy is dark, day-sustaining, rooted in Christ, feet sure, immovable because of what's coming and what he's done for you. Happiness is all your little planets are orbiting just the way that you want, so it emits this night's pleasant aroma. Not talking happiness, talking deep-rooted, abiding joy. So he says, count it all joy when the adversity comes. Solomon says in chapter 7, adversity's from his hand. So when this comes from God, what do you need to know? What do you need to walk in? What truth do you need to lay hold of? He says this adversity is doing something to you. It's God's gift to you. It's producing something in your inner self. He says it produces steadfastness. That's really perseverance. And that's really just a word that means to hold up and under. So the visual is that you are under unbelievable trial, adversity, pain, grief, and you are like Samson. 
and you're just hold. It's the opposite of just collapsing, right? You're holding up under pressure so that no matter what gets put on you, you're still standing. You have something that's been cultivated in you so that no matter what, or what, no matter what grief, trial, hardship, adversity, suffering, pain, pang, no matter what hits you, you're still able to hold up. But look at what, how he helps us understand this because he says when the adversity flows from the hand of God, you can know in this moment, I'm developing the strength of Jesus Christ. We talked about this in Romans 8. You're literally getting his qualities conformed into you. That's why, what if, when you walked in this morning, I asked you, I met everybody at the front. Hey, do you want to be like a strong, rooted person in Jesus? Yeah, totally. Awesome. Man, do you want some adversity this week? No. Right? We don't want both, right? We want all the joy, all the freedom. We don't want any bit of suffering. But the Bible says you cannot know Jesus. You cannot gain the fullness of him if you don't walk the path of suffering. Like, suffering's not admitted from you. It's promised to you, but joy in it is given to you through Christ. And he says it's producing this thing in you, which is why James says, let this process of adversity go on in you, because if you do, at the end of your life, you'll be complete lacking in nothing. That is totally huge. Because when was the last time you heard someone say, hey, what do you want at the end of your life? No one talks about this anymore. They say, oh, man, at the end of my life, I, when was the last time you heard somebody say, I just want to be rooted, mature, righteous, holy, blameless, walking in the love of Christ, knowing his mercy and grace in ways I never knew before? What we hear is, I really want this retirement and I really want this type of lifestyle, and I really want this type of account, and this type of family, and these certain situations. No one talks about this. No one talks about James 1. Our, our culture values comfort way above character, right? So do whatever it takes to get at the top, even if it means you steamroll everybody else. Because character at the end of the day. And this is what he's revealing, right? He says, man, at the end of it all, it's that you might know him and share in his sufferings and be made more like the very Son of God. For the Christian, we love that because we want to be more like him. And we know there's no other pathway to be made more like him than the adversity that flows through the hand of God. So we rejoice in our joyous times and we rejoice in our adversity, not with happy fingers, but with God is enough. He's in this. He upholds me. He has me. He'll never abandon me rather than, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know who's in charge. This really stinks. I have nowhere to run, so my pain's tied to nothing. My grief's tied to nothing. My joylessness is tied to nothing. So it's about you just fighting it out the rest of your life, white-knuckling it until you somehow find semblance of peace somewhere. He's saying that's a vain life. So let me, if this is God's gift, if this is what it's doing for us, I want to just end with these two questions. If, if Jesus met you at the door when you walked in this morning, that would be, number one, incredible, right? God incarnate at the door. Number one, probably wouldn't want to hear a sermon from me. Just say, Jesus, I'll sit at your feet, right? So he gives you a sermon, and then he says, I'm going to give you two options for the next five years of your life. Your choice. You can choose whatever you want. You're a free human being. You can either choose the next five years of your life, you'll receive no adversity whatsoever. All that will flow through my hand and from my hand will be joyous 
and happy and comfortable and good and well-meaning. No one you love will pass from this life. No unexpected deaths. Work will go great. You'll work your way to the top of the market even. Kids will all behave. They'll all sit on the couch, drink their lattes. They'll all do everything exactly as you want. Your whole solar system will be at total and complete ease. Your life map in the back of your mind will roll out exactly as you desire it to roll out. No one will mock you for your faith. No family member will persecute you. Five years. Five years. At the end of that five years, you won't be anything more like me. You won't know my grace. You won't know my forgiveness. You won't understand the depths of my mercy. You won't know the far reaches of my kindness. You'll have a great five years. Or, choice number two, the next five years, I'm going to actively bring about some serious adversity in your life. And life's going to be hard, and it's going to be difficult, and you're going to lose some people that you love. And you're going to... You're going to have dark nights and dark days and your soul is going to feel like failing and you're going to wonder where I am. You're going to experience loss. Work won't go the way you like. Family will ostracize you. But man, at the end of those five years, the wealth of kindness you understand in my son, the riches that you really realize that you have that's been purchased for you in my death and resurrection will be overwhelming for you. The comfort that you learn that I offer will satisfy your soul like a sea. You'll be so much more like the image of my son. You'll know peace that you, where places you didn't know peace existed. You'll see meaning where you didn't know meaning existed. five years, but at the end of it all, you will know me in ways that you never knew me before. You will know the scriptures in ways you never knew it before. You'll know the depths of what I am to you in ways that you have never known before. You're going to be more holy, more patient, more kind, more long-suffering, more empathetic. I want to know what you would really choose, honestly, that Jesus gave you the option. You can have either next five years. James says, the wise person says, if adversity comes, I welcome it as a gift. Solomon says, when adversity comes, it woke me up to realizing the vainness of my life outside of him. Johnny Erickson Tata, maybe you guys know her, quadriplegic, used in massive ways for God's glory. She was 18, had the whole world in front of her, paralyzed from the neck down. She said this, God is more concerned with conforming me to the likeness of his son than leaving me in my comfort zones. God is more interested in inward qualities and outward circumstances, things like refining my faith, humbling my heart, cleaning up my thought life, and strengthening my 
character. He's so much more interested than giving you cozy, tidy, American dream, Bergen County. Like, man, don't you want to be rooted like James 1? Somebody who knows Christ, who's steadfast, who holds up under pressure, who's literally being conformed more into the image of the holy incarnate son who walks in greater joy and steadfastness because his lens sees clearly because of the adversity that he's walked in. But don't you want to be someone who's strong, who has the courage of Christ, who shares their faith, doesn't care what people say, who walks the path because he knows the path is an eternal path. He has a long view. He realizes when he's on fire. He admits it when he needs help. He throws on the water on top of the gasoline. He gets godly men and women around him. He has them speak truth in the midst of these adverse times that speak truth and not falsehood so they don't fall into unbelief and walk in true belief. The person who says, man, I am along with him. There's no other place. Place to be, and whether you bring good times or adverse times, I will praise you because I have you. And because I realize your goal for me is not my happiness and comfort, it is you. And that is and will be enough. That's what we need prayer for, right? We're all in this good company together. And ultimately, right, each of these sound bites of wisdom just lead us to who? Jesus. Who's the only one who lived like this? Jesus. He was the perfectly wise man. He worked in perfect wisdom, right? Greater than Solomon, says Matthew. And I love it because this Jesus says that you walk in wisdom by only getting to know the wisest person who ever lived, who died for your foolishness and reconciled you to himself and empowers you with his spirit. It says that Jesus was empowered by the spirit of God. That's how he walked in wisdom. And now we can walk in wisdom with the wisest man who ever lived, who not only gives us wisdom but saves us to his wisdom. He says, I'm going to free you from your foolishness in your sin that thinks I can get there by my merits and works and righteous ways. He says, no, that's foolishness. You can only get there through the work of my son. I'm going to save you from the foolishness of trying to live a vain life, untethered to him, saying, I know how this life works. I'm going to be God and just figure things out. He saves you from that foolishness to the wisdom of Christ. What a good gift Jesus is. Listen, Jesus doesn't want you to simply be amazed at his life. He wants him to be used in your life. Not just staring and go, wow, he's so wise and amazing. No, he wants to be an instrument of grace in you to change your appetites and desires to help you see the world as we should see it. Can we ask him for help in this way this morning? God, we need desperately to know the wisdom of Christ. We need the Spirit of God to help us today. Father, I pray for brothers and sisters in this room this morning that are walking and they have been laughing while they are on fire. God, might you humble them and reveal to them the gracious, kind work of you to wake them up to the smoke that surrounds them. God, would you help those that are living a life where they only view adversity as unjust and mean and condemning? Would you, as a child of God, encourage them? that no matter what day they faced, it has flowed through the gracious hand of God not to harm them but to carry them into greener pastures of your Son's grace. Father, would we trust you this week more than we trust you today? Would you help us to believe in your character more than we believe in it today? God, I pray for those this morning who are not Christians, who have never leaned into the sovereign work of God through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, would you enable them faith? Would you help them to repent of sin and turn to you in faith for salvation of their sin? 
God, may you protect some that are on the road of unbelief, who have walked in great belief, yet sin has entangled them. God, would you put good, wise men and women around them to encourage them and direct them? Would you put even maybe at times your activeness to wake them up, Lord, in your kindness to what is at stake? Father, would you preserve your people? Would you help us? Help us to walk in wisdom, not of the world, but of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.